Okay, hello everybody. Uh, hi, it's Matt. I, and I'm waiting for the other Matt, um, who is Matt Bivens, who is the former uh, editor of the Moscow Times. I just gotta find him. Um, and then I have to invite him to speak. So, Matt, where are you? Uh, there he is. All right. And, uh, Matt, you've been invited to speak. Are you there? All right, you got to unmute yourself. Hey, can you hear me? I can. Uh, how's it going? Good, how are you? Good, good. Like we just, we weren't just talking like two minutes ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> this is different, though. <laughs> this is different, right. Um... All right, so welcome everybody. Thanks to everybody uh, for showing up. And um, let me just tweet out that we're, we've started this. Uh, all right, so uh, for those of you who don't know, Matt um, Matt Bivens is uh, he, he's an old friend of mine and also is the former editor of the Moscow Times uh, and the St. Petersburg Times, right? Yeah, both, yeah. Yep, and so we go back a long way. Uh, um, once upon a time, we uh, we sat at the same island of desks uh, in, a, in a newsroom on Ulitsa Pravdi in, uh, in Moscow and um, had a lot of hijinks there. Uh, back then, I, I, I was... I was kind of like at the bottom of the barrel in that newsroom. I, I was the person they gave stories like, um, you know, so a, a teacher sends uh, his mother's head through the mail, uh, you know, to, uh, I'm sorry, a student sent a teacher's head through the mail to um, uh, his high school teacher, and they would give me that, and then they would send you on the road for the presidential elections. Is that yeah. is that how you recall that the setup? Like basically, I was sort of the comic relief in that in that newsroom. <laughs> yeah, well, there was a lot of that was an important beat. That, <laughs> that, that country is a mess. <laughs> there was at that time. Uh, I was I had the important job of being tasked with being the political reporter about the Communist Party because they were such an important political force. And I learned everything there was to know about the Communist Party, and it's completely irrelevant. I knew all of their ins and outs, who was up, who was down. But the Communist Party under Yeltsin was a terrible opposition party that had no relevance. Well, I'm better off doing what you did. Well, except, except they still would have won the 1996 elections if we hadn't, if we hadn't stepped in, right? If, if well, certainly they would have. Uh, I mean, they ran such a bonehead, uh, but they they would have done a lot better if there had been an honest election. That's for sure. Right, right. And you um, you wrote an article uh, called uh, "Democratizacia," right? About no, that was the, no, that was the journal. Um, the journal, right? I'm sorry. What, what uh, was the? Uh, that was a long time ago. I wrote an article with Jonas Bernstein, another person from that same island of desks in the moscow times um called the russia you never met and it was it was going to be a big 
full spread article cover story in the Atlantic, and they pulled out at the last second and paid us in full um, and said, we don't want to run this. And we ended up publishing it in a scholarly journal. And then within a year, everyone was saying what we had said, but it was not a welcome message at that time. And what was that message? Uh, that Russia was not turning out to be um, a democratic political system and that all of our advice to improve the economy had basically helped lead to the looting of the economy. Right, right. That would be a short version. That would be a short I mean, there, there was some other stuff in there, if I remember correctly, about the the kind of backroom deal where, you know, we, we essentially threw our weight behind... Um, a privatization effort that uh, that led to the you know, sort of creation of this instant oligarch class who in turn funneled tons of money uh, to the Yeltsin campaign uh, to help them win re-election uh, that year. Am I wrong? Did, was that was that part of that? Oh no, that was part of it. Sure, that was like uh, you know that, and that's. That storyline that the oligarchs got access to the oil and gas companies and whatnot, and then openly um, rallied around Yeltsin and put their money into buying up media and controlling the the narrative, um, they, they haven't even disputed that. That's something the oligarchs like Berezovsky um, bragged about at the time. Right, and and what's so funny about that is that and. and not to dwell on this too much, but this was part of the whole Russiagate narrative that drove me crazy, which is that we intervened on such a massive scale to help with this privatization effort where essentially the government lent the assets to these oligarchs uh, or gave away the assets to these oligarchs who in turn funneled the money directly back to the to the Yeltsin campaign um, or funneled some money directly some back it, to yeah. the... Yeah, uh, and, you know, in order to... to you know, basically protect him from the challenge from the these bonehead communists. It wouldn't have been any better, but just you know, it would have been would have been less of uh, an intervention. Um, anyway, that's that's an interesting story. You uh, you wrote about that. You and I also both wrote a lot about um, a similar theme over the years, which was this notion that the Western reporters who were based in uh, you know in Moscow, and we both spent time in, in Ukraine too. Um, but they frequently, they, they almost inevitably got uh, re- reported the wrong story or back to the to the United States about what was actually happening in the country. Like they they would be sending these cheerful stories about the growth of the middle class and the development of um, you know capitalism and what you know actually things were going in a much different direction that ended up leading more towards nationalism. Um, do, do you have any do you, thoughts about that, the things that you want to share on, on that front? Um, I mean, that's. I think that the fact that they got the story wrong has been... Like, it should be widely recognized. I don't know if everybody does widely recognize it. Um, they just came in with a whole um, cheerleader story about how... Russia was becoming capitalist and democratic um, and they suppressed all sorts of events that were contrary to that narrative so it's kind of a familiar story right 
and all of this is just the reason to bring this up is because this is our backdrop for talking about uh, what's going on now. Um, you know, to me, I mean, I haven't followed it as closely, but um, you know, when when you read about uh, what's going on in Ukraine now, and when you when you look at the coverage, wh- like what are what are some of the first things that go through your mind? Uh, well, yeah, so. I, you know, I'm still, I'm an ER doctor now. That's right. <laughs> so I not... forgot to mention that. Yeah. <laughs> right. You got a real job. Yeah. I had to go get a real job. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm not like a full-time reporter on the ground covering these sorts of things the way I used to. But um, uh, my wife is Ukrainian and Russian, but born in Ukraine, Ukrainian, but lived in Russia and has her family in Russia. And we're in Russia and Ukraine all the time. This We watch this stuff very closely and I, you know, talk to all of our friends who are still doing reporting. So we're kind of obsessed with this story. Um, it, it seems like it, it depends on how far you want to go back. But it seems like if you remember when we pulled out of Afghanistan just recently um, and Biden was just pilloried for saying something to the effect of, look, these things are never clean. Um, it's always sort of a disaster when you pull out after a 20 year war. And they were just murderous on him in the press. Now, of course, I think Afghanistan is detuning worse than it's ever. Uh, but we're not. We don't hear about it. We don't cover it. No one cares. So all of that outrage was somewhat insincere. Then Biden made a comment recently about, well, you know, if Russia does invade Ukraine, we just have to see. Like, we'll we'll just have to play it by ear. It'll depend on what they do. And he got a similar punishing. What are you doing? You're greenlighting an invasion. And so now we're swinging in the opposite direction. They're so frantic not to be punished again that the White House is really ratcheting up the tension in this situation. They've pulled out um, all the diplomatic families from Ukraine. They've asked Americans living in Ukraine to leave the country. Um, Almost no other European countries are following suit with this, and the ones that are are clearly doing so under Washington pressure. It's only like three or four. And Ukraine itself has said, this is premature. You're dramatizing the situation. Why are you making things hysterical? So it it almost feels like we're going to blunt. And, you know, I'm not talking at all about Putin's culpability. He has culpability here, too. But it feels like we're, for domestic reasons of our own, really risking... A catastrophe here. Yeah, absolutely. And an avoidable one, too, right? And this is another thing I yeah. wanted to ask you about, because you and I both first arrived in that region at a time when Americans basically had limitless political capital in the area. Uh, the population was, ex- on, you know, on the whole, extremely well disposed toward Americans, um, you know, you you could uh, just just the idea showing people a video of a supermarket, you people would weep with you know at at the prospect of you know being able to to experience things that they hadn't during the Soviet Union. Um, you know, when I first got there, everybody wanted to meet anybody with a blue passport, and within ten years, uh, we we blew it all. Right? I mean, I think we. Americans, yeah, kind of amazing. Yeah, uh, Americans were viewed completely differently in both places. 
Uh, and you know, we had we had the ability, I think, to to keep Russia and Ukraine um, as you know strategic and economic partners at the very least, uh, if not exactly friends. Um, and they. Or, or do you think that this this was always inevitably going to happen this way? Because there's 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 a school of thought that says that that would that this would have happened in any case because of Russian nationalism and that sort of thing. Um, but what, what what's your take on that? Well, you're, well, you're so there's two things you were talking about there. One is did we blow it and could we have stayed better um, in better relations with Russia? And I think that's absolutely true. Um, but that's a different question from whether the crisis with Ukraine was inevitable. Right. I, I don't. I don't think the crisis with like. There's been a lot of good faith effort in the what is it, thirty years, since the Soviet Union fell. Yeah. A, a lot of good faith effort on the part of the Russians and the Ukrainians to try and move forward in a way where everybody gets to have what they want, and everybody feels secure and safe. Um. And throughout it, it seems to me the thing that has made it dangerous all the time is has been, I think, NATO. I, I think we're long overdue to ask a question of why do we need the North Atlantic Treaty Organization? You know, what? how is it helping us that we're adding countries all the time around Russia to this organization when the only time we've really seen a signal that Russia wants to push outward is when they're pushing back against this. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And just to be clear, the to Russians, the whole NATO question, and, and I get that a lot of Americans don't care about this, but the there, there's a, a whole story about whether or not NATO, whether or not we agreed or promised um, to never step uh, what is it? What was what was the phrase? Even one step forward toward, one, uh, yeah, one inch or something. Yeah, right. It's not. It's not. It's not in dispute. We have. It's well acknowledged that when things were falling apart with the Soviet Union, when the Berlin Wall was about to come down and such, that there were a lot of verbal agreements back and forth between Gorbachev and uh, James Baker and George H. W. Bush. Um, to the effect where they were making verbal agreements about, look, if we do this, will you do that? And they're not even denying that, meaning we do not even deny that we offered those verbals and said, you can you can safely let the Berlin Wall fall. We're not going to expand NATO. Uh, and then our position now is like cheap lawyers were saying, yeah, well, you should have got it in writing. That's our position. They just didn't get it in writing, so it doesn't count. But real decisions and were made like allowing Eastern Europe to leave the Soviet bloc uh, based on those verbals, and then we don't honor them. Right. Yeah. And, and um, I, I interviewed uh, a couple of years ago a former CIA analyst named Melvin Goodman, uh, who has written a couple of books, uh, but he he wrote one called "The Whistleblower" at the CIA, but uh, he was. He interviewed both James Baker and uh, Shevardnadze, Eduard Shevardnadze, 
um, who were, who were both members of the those talks, and they both confirmed, for instance, that um, the word leap leapfrog was used. That Americans promised not to leapfrog East Germany into the Russians' mm-hmm. uh, former sphere of influence. So this story, while it's not very well known in America, it is in Russia, and so the 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 spectacle of seeing all these nations suddenly tumbling into NATO's orbit and now you know now that becoming an issue with Ukraine to to Russians this like it uh, it's it's like absolutely infuriating right and um, I, it's also I, not mm-hmm. it's also not um, it's not just that moment it's that you know, like in the 90s Russia was told well maybe there'll be a pathway for you to join NATO uh, and there was the Partnership for Peace. Remember that? Mm-hmm. Um, and and then over time, all these other countries were signing up, and Russia was repeatedly expressing interest. So can we join NATO? And finally, it was said, no, no, because NATO needs to have somebody to be allied against. In or and but this is all happening at the level of an organization that seems to have taken on a life of its own. You know, you'll see something happen. And the American government will make a comment, and the German government will make a comment, and then NATO will speak up. What is NATO? <laughs> right. Is it us? Right. It's not a country. Right. Not, it has a parliament. Okay, that's great. Who's? How does this parliament felt to be having an opinion about things? You know, and it's it's basically. Um, a bizarre situation where often the most inflammatory comments will come out of an organization that does not exist as a nation or a place. Right. It's sort, it's sort of surreal. I mean, it, it, it it's clearly a proxy of sorts, right, for American foreign policy of sorts, right? I mean, I mean, yes, and it's. I would say it's also a proxy for defense contractors, right? And like. The main thing that you're supposed to know about NATO is that if you join it, you have to commit to spending 2% of your GDP on weapons. And they all have to be NATO-compatible weapons. So if you used to be arming with AK-47s, now you have to buy American, right? Um, 2% of GDP is a huge amount of money. Uh, Most countries don't spend that on their defense. We spend like 3.7%. I just looked it up. Um, so that was one of the frustrating things about Donald Trump, because one of the things I liked about Donald Trump was that he was critical of NATO, but all he really did about it was go out and say, well, um, these countries need to start hitting their 2% GDP rule. We're tired of paying for them. So it was sort of like he became an even better salesman on commission for the defense industry than the NATO defense uh, salespeople. Right, right. It, it is interesting, though, that the that the attitude um, about Trump, because if you remember, you know, he was sort of the clown prince of the media through early 2016, probably, and then it was he st- he started making those pretty uh, sharp criticisms of NATO. If I remember correctly, in March of 2016, and 
Um, I, I just wonder if the, cause there was a dramatic shift in tone and, and certainly it had a lot to do with the fact that he was locking up the nomination at the time and people were, were grappling with the fact that this was really going to happen. But, yeah. uh, but I, I think, I do think that, um, going after NATO was something that, that sort of dramatically changed Washington's thinking about, about Trump, um, or at I least mean, it was- impacted it anyway. I mean, there was certainly an obsession about it. That was one of the obsessions. I mean, remember when he went on his European tour and there was all that breathless coverage of, is he going to endorse Article 5? Article 5, Article 5. Nobody in America has heard about Article 5. Nobody cares about it. It's the article that says that if a NATO member is attacked, that the other NATO members come to its defense. And, like, there is no way, getting back to full circle to Ukraine, there is no way if Russia truly invades Ukraine, that we're going to go in there and fight them in a ground war. Right. Um, That's what Obama pointed out. Right. He said, people need to calm down and be realistic about Ukraine. We're not going to have, if Russia decides to dominate Ukraine, they're going to dominate Ukraine. It's in their sphere of influence. Um, But when, you know, so the focus with Trump was, Oh, he needs to say that, uh, he will always honor Article five. And he went out there and made some speech in Europe and and refused to do it. And everybody was pulling their hair out. Yep. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I, I do remember that. Um, and I also remember that it was around that same time that uh, I, remember, I remember you and I talking about videos of um, American advisors uh, sort of visiting these joint exercises between Amer- sort of American soldiers and Ukrainian soldiers on, on the territory of Ukraine. Do you remember that? Around yeah, I know those yeah. videos are kind of crazy. But this was this was like 2017, maybe 16, something like that. And I'm, you and I both had this conversation: like, is that really happening? Are we are we really are we really going to do this? Um, you know, as as if the specter of American forces right on the border with, uh, you know, a a nuclear power that uh, actually can fight back um, as if that isn't a terrifying situation, no matter what your opinion of it was. I I thought it was remarkable that that just didn't get a whole lot of ink. Uh, Yeah. I don't know. What did you, what was your take on that? I mean, if, I don't know if you had something comparable. It's hard for us to like even understand that because we don't have anything comparable. You kind of want to come up with an analogy and say, imagine if, you know, Russian or Chinese soldiers were training, you know, people in Mexico for, uh, you know, to defend. But we don't have those kinds of borders or those kinds of problems. We've got like a very secure, safe situation geographically the way we are. Right. And then, well, we did have it in the Cuba, in Cuba, you know, in the in the sixties. But but there, we had full wig out when it was when it was happening to us. But but um, right, yeah. But now it's but now we think it's fine if we. Cuba is a good example because we had full wig out about the thought of having troops and weapons put into Cuba because it's too close. But we don't seem to understand why. That would be a problem for Russia if we were to put NATO weapons in Ukraine. Right, right. And it's also heretical to say, well, look at this from Russia's point of view. 
Yeah, people immediately say, who cares <laughs> what, what Russia right. thinks? Well, well, like you don't have to like them to care because it does actually end, uh, end up mattering. Um, you know, we, I mean, we, it, it, you're right. We used to not, you used to be able to even try to understand Al Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And, you know, why can't we understand Russia? They're a big actor in the world. They have their own agenda and they're pretty forthright about what they want. Yeah, and 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 it also, uh, once upon a time, we had a whole academic establishment that was just devoted to. We even give it a name, right? Like Kremlinology, to devoted right. to trying to figure out what it is that Russia's thinking and what they care about. What 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 are their intentions? And now, uh, that whole intellectual exercise is like verboten. It's. Um, you know, the only thing, if you're, if you're even thinking that direction, you are a Putin sympathizer or whatever it is, uh, yeah. which just, it, I think that's what worries me about this crisis. I don't know if you agree. It's, it's just the, the inability to think through what might, uh, what consequences might ensue, um, yeah, from from Russia invading and maybe being met with American weapons in return, or uh, I mean, there are there are lots of things that can go wrong, aren't there? I, I mean, I I don't know. I'm sure. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that would be right. I yeah. mean, we keep doing this too. Like, um, you know, in Syria, we had that event that we never talk about. Just in the past few years, where um, American Backed forces killed something like 200 Russian soldiers, right? Who were um, yeah across uh, the river from each other, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, even going back to Kosovo, there was all that business about troops racing each other to the airport, and you know maybe getting into conflict, conflict Russian and American troops. And if we if you keep putting bodies of armed men facing each other down, something's going to go wrong eventually. That's just math. So, and and there is no way that if Russia decides to invade Ukraine, that it would not, that it would, that it would just like back itself back out again in response to um, a bloody nose, you know? They, they, I don't know, it sounds like, I'm, I'm probably explaining that badly. I don't want to say I don't want to be expressing any sympathy for the idea that Russia should invade Ukraine. Um, that's not okay. But it's I, I think what's happening is that they're again expressing their dissatisfaction with us continually trying to turn Ukraine against them. That's sort of the core problem. Right, and if, remember the Russians have a high tolerance for getting bloody noses because (laughs) they've uh they've had plenty of them over the years doesn't seem to deter them from making aggressive uh, decisions uh they had two different catastrophes in chichnya from which they learned basically nothing um so i i don't think you can count on uh some some kind of calculation on their part that uh Maybe this isn't a good idea because American weapons are there or whatever it is. Like, I just, I just don't see that being part of their thinking. But who knows, right? Um, 
anyway, do you want it to, to open it up to, uh, to sure, some, yeah. some questions here? All right, let's, let's take some callers. Uh, okay, I think D, you're up. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi, D. Hi. Um, thanks so much for your articles. They're always informative, and I, I really appreciate it. So I oh, have two questions. Mm-hmm. One, and maybe you already answered this, but the article uh, mentions that you at the U.S. treated the Ukraine as a pawn nation from the start. Um, backing a series of leaders, shamelessly looting the country, um, about which the American public still knows little. Mm. So one of my questions is, can you elaborate on that? Or maybe that's beyond the scope of what you wanted to talk here uh, or talk today about. But I would love to know more about that because you're right. I don't know anything about it. Yeah. The second question is, um, based on you and your guests' knowledge of all the cultures involved, is there an answer that saves face for everybody? And that's it. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Thanks for the question. For, for, uh, for the first one, you know, and, and this is basically our playbook throughout the region we we have this sort of black hat white hat strategy where we go in we find somebody who's usually um surrounded by ivy educated advisors who knows how to speak the neoliberal lingo and we back that person to the hilt and uh in the case of russia it was yeltsin obviously and ukraine uh, I think we ended up, it was, it was Kuchma ended up being our, uh, the person who spearheaded our privatization efforts there. And, um, uh, he ended up fleeing Ukraine, um, and was found guilty of laundering, uh, oh no, that was Lazarenko, um, uh, but, but, but Kuchma was also sort of a notorious, uh, kleptocrat. Um, I don't know, Matt. What what what's your memory of that of that situation? Kuchma, yeah, he um he was in power from like the '90s to like 2004, right? Wasn't that the election that uh, with Yushchenko Yanukovych? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, he definitely oversaw privatization in Ukraine, and privatization unfolded there the way it did everywhere in the post-Soviet space where anything of value was handed off to basically um, cronies of the government. Um, there was no open dealing with privatization. It went to, and, you know, if there was something valuable, oil, gas, anything like that, that's more Russia than Ukraine. Um, it went to somebody who became an oligarch. And usually those oligarchs were former Komsomol or Communist Party connected people. Um, as yeah. far as like, yeah, good. Uh, no, I mean, Lazarenko was his prime minister, right? And the, he, he was the one I was thinking of who was arrested for laundering $114 million. Uh, and he was, uh, he, he was one of the people who, um, uh, you know, was, was, uh, in, in, in charge of the sort of privatization of, uh, the 
gas and natural resources sector. Uh, so, trying to think of who else would would have qualified. Um, Pinchuk, uh, yeah, uh, there was uh, Martinenko, right? Um, the the uh, uh, Victor Med- Medvedchuk. Uh, uh, there were just a whole series of these people, and but the the whole the whole point was we poured tons and tons of money into um, these privatization efforts, and they worked basically the same in both places. Where the whole idea was, um, you know, essentially, it was a a process by which the ministers who we backed. Uh, had, you know, they weren't, they, they were sort of quasi um, transparent processes by which they simply just privatized these huge previously state owned natural enterprise, enterprises into the hands of their buddies. Um, and, and they you know, became. Some, mm-hmm. and some of that wasn't necessarily like our fault, right? Like, I think sometimes. I wasn't really like I'm remembering all this better now. I was I didn't know we were going to go down this particular old path. But um, if you think back, the original privatization plan they talked about vouchers, right? Mm-hmm. And they were going to give every Russian citizen one voucher, and then they were going to take all of the property that had been nationalized, and they were going to sell it off, and everybody would have a share, uh, and then. Yeah, it was like, it was like catch twenty two. Everybody gets a share. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, it's it, it's not a terrible idea if they had actually done that, right? right. If, if there had been a way that you could have taken, like, um, the equivalent of the Nasdaq five hundred, um, created it, and given everybody in the country an equal share, then that would have been one way to equitably um, share out, like, reprivatize things, and instead vouchers became a joke because they took everything of any value out of the voucher program and just suddenly announced oh you know Boris Berezovsky owns this now he owns the national airline oh you know um, Hodorkovsky owns the oil company and uh, and that was that right so, yeah, in Russia they had these amazing uh, uh, things called loans for shares which you and I both covered where, <laughs> where uh, because uh, the a lot of the people who were bidding to get these gigantic uh, state, uh, you know, own oil companies or natural gas companies, they didn't have the cash to actually bid. So the state lent them the money um, that they would use to, uh, to to buy controlling stakes in these enterprises. Like, an overnight became the richest people on earth. Uh, yeah, it was particularly it was just insult to injury because they were selling these things off for pennies, right? Like penny pennies on the dollar, and people who were winning them didn't even have pennies, uh, and they turned to their cronies in the state and said, "Hey, loan me some pennies for this," um, and that's how that happened. And it's also like to your to your point about how the American media gets it wrong. We were talking about this before. Everybody just sort of rolled with this and talked about how this was all just democracy and free marketeering in action right up until the moment that 
they realized that American corporations weren't going to be able to bid for these things. <laughs> and, and that's when they turned on the Kremlin. Now it's now it's evil. Now it's corrupt because we're not going to be able to play. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And also, they the, a lot a lot of the oligarchs stopped exporting a lot of their wealth overseas, and they started mm. there started to be an emphasis on keeping the wealth uh, in the countries, um, and that wasn't that wasn't uh, greeted too warmly either, but. Um, in terms of the second question about saving face, I don't know. I mean, I th- I, I think it's I, I don't think there's an out at this point. Um, you know, it depends on what Putin is going to do. My my guess is that he's well. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, you know, this, if we if we want to be this involved in their business, uh, there is an out, and the out would be for uh, there to be an honest discussion about NATO. About whether or not we're going to press like, for why, NATO. Why do we need NATO? What <laughs> is the point of NATO? Like, right. is NATO destabilizing the region? Why do we need to... Um, why are we committing to defending all of these countries and taking over their defense? For, you know, so that they can do whatever they want in relation to Russia instead of getting along with Russia. You know, why, do, why, what is, is this making things worse? I think it is. You know, when, when the Soviet Union collapsed, we declared the Cold War was over and the Warsaw Pact disappeared. And they seem to be, you know, they're without a Warsaw Pact. Nobody's sitting around saying, how come there's not a Warsaw Pact? Why don't we need that for international stability? Actually, right. we don't. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, no one. It's not going to be looked at that way. I mean, if obviously, if if uh, if Russia goes into Ukraine, um, you know, there, there there's going to be a new round of weapon sales to every NATO member, and everybody who's not a NATO member in the region is is going to be um, is is going to be you know encouraged to reconsider that. This you know is is going to be brought in, right? Uh, so I, I don't know. I, th- I I don't think there's I don't think there's a way out personally at this point. I think I think um, that ship is sailed. I mean, the, hopefully the, it's just hopefully he won't invade. Hopefully right. Putin will not invade. That he's you know stirred things up and and uh, you know it has to be said. I don't really like the brinkmanship. I think it's reckless, but it it doesn't mean it won't work. It may it may actually all of this hyperventilating by Washington and moving troops and selling weapons into Ukraine, it may give Russia pause. It doesn't, you know, they don't want that. They don't want a big war. Um, they just don't want Ukraine destabilized and taken over by a hostile organization. And that's like, that has happened in their opinion in past. You know, the whole back and forth between Yushchenko and Yanukovych over the 2000s about first one then the other first one then the other one backed by the United States the other backed by Russia um, that that smacks to the Kremlin of us trying to control Ukraine so they have to control Ukraine right yeah I mean I uh, I, I think the calculation for the Russians is they will they would rather invade 
is is it safer to invade or to let Ukraine become part of NATO? Uh, I think they probably like this. I think personally, they probably like this limbo state where um, the Donbass is destabilized. Um, the Russian majority in that region is kind of stirred up and pro-Russian and a counterweight to uh, the more pro-Western half of Ukraine. And but nothing gets settled either way, right? Right. Uh, anyway, cool. Do you th- th- thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Uh, all right. Uh, and let's uh, let's let's go to Gary. Can you hear me? Yep. Yes. Thank yeah. you. Uh, so just following up on NATO, I mean, I, I agree that, you know, when the USSR fell, it seemed like NATO lost its reason for being. Um, but <laughs> but all of the Eastern, you know, the former Warsaw Pact countries obviously didn't think that and, you know, fell over themselves to join. And then you had the you had the, you know, the, the Baltics joined in, I think, 2004. And, you know, the, the Russians are just now proving why NATO is relevant. You know, I'm sure the Baltic states are thanking their lucky stars that they have NATO troops, however small, in their country. Uh, and Poland probably thinks the same way. Um, you know, so I don't really see, you know, and I personally, I mean, you know, I'm an American. I, I guess maybe I'm looking at it from, you know, parochial eyes, but I mean, NATO could never be a threat to anybody. <laughs> they're, they're pretty dysfunctional, except when they have a major threat, you know, facing them. And even then, that is yet to be proven if they would actually be effective. But, but I mean, you know, so the Baltics are part of NATO. Like, so what? Is NATO going to invade Russia? You know, hardly. Um, so I, I think, you know, it's very counterproductive for for Russia to, to be playing the big bad bully, the big bad bear of the East that uh, everybody always suspected they were, and now they're 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 proving it. Um, so I think I think they're showing why why NATO uh, should exist, and I agree with you. If uh, if they invade Ukraine, it's going to be it's not going to be good for anybody. But you know, I mean, and my my, my last point is, you know, it's like. Putin wants to, re, you know, rebring, rebuild the USSR, you know, using using the, you know, fantastic intelligence agencies and, and military power and and, you know, but how well did that work for them last time? You know, so and there's it's like the same playbook that uh, that brought them to what Putin calls the greatest uh, geopolitical disaster of the 20th century. Well, uh, Matt, you want to do you want to take a shot yeah. at that first? <laughs> no, I mean it's it's really um, hard to figure out what exactly to think about all this. Um, I you, you know to say that NATO won't invade Russia um, that's our perspective. I don't think we would invade Russia. Why would we? But. I think for the Russians, that calculus changed 
hugely when we had the Kosovo bombing, right? When we got ourselves involved in the Yugoslav wars, um, which were very personal to Russia, they feel like that's their, you know, Serbian brothers, and we came out against the Serbs and, uh, uh, you know, led a bombing campaign. That was the moment when we were in Russia when, uh, I mean, Taibi, you were there. Um, that was when things really turned uh, as far as how Russians felt about Americans. Suddenly you couldn't even go anywhere near the American embassy. There was like nasty, angry protests. And there's a long history. Like we're not, we're not, we don't have the same country that Russia does. We're like, we have our perfectly safe borders. No one invades us. Russia has been invaded repeatedly, often straight through. Oh, are you there? Matt? Sorry, I got a phone you call. Lost you know, I just got a phone call on the same same, uh, same phone that cut off what I was saying. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Russia, Russia looks at Ukraine as integral to its security. It doesn't have to own Ukraine. It doesn't have to be in charge of it. Um, but it cannot have it be owned by a hostile foreign power. And that's what we have decided that we are in the past, like, five years or so. We went from the Obama era when we were talking about resetting the relationship with Russia um, and, you know, calming down. Obama saying things like, you know, to Mitt Romney, you know, the the 80s want their foreign policy back. You're making a big deal about Russia. They're not an important power. We're just all going to get along. To suddenly Russia is supposedly controlling us through our elections and they foisted Donald Trump on us as some sort of dirty trick and they're scheming against us all the time. Russia hears all that and says, I guess we're enemies and you're going to control Ukraine now, which is like the front door of our house. Uh, that's not OK. So we're going to control Ukraine. And that's been the back and forth since like the 2004 Orange Revolution elections, when uh, it was back and forth between a U.S. backed group and a Russian backed group. And it's been that way since. Yeah. And it's not a, um, you know, I, I think we, we tend to forget that uh, countries like Moldova, Georgia, Ukraine, um, you know, all, all the former Soviet countries and the former Warsaw Pact countries, a lot of them have uh, you know, very, very deep cultural and economic ties to Russia. Uh, and some of the deals that have been proposed to bring some of these countries into the fold would have forced those countries to make a choice between keep uh, you know keep, keeping some of those relationships and keeping some of that trade and not right so uh in the in the sort of key moment in 2013 when um when Yanukovych who intended to sign the EU integration agreement, um, mm, right? We they were offering like the the aid offer to sign that deal was like eight hundred and twenty eight million, I think something along those lines, um, and part of that was intended as compensation for uh, what was going to be a reduced flow of trade with Russia. Meanwhile, the Russians ended up offering fifteen billion dollars. Um, and so, you know, the, the whole thing put, put, uh, 
you know, countries like Ukraine in this impossible position where they're being forced to choose between essentially be, between being um, members of two spheres of influence, uh, you know, rather rather than either side being um, okay with, uh, you know, a country like Ukraine being in the orbit of both U- Europe and Russia, um, it was sort of one or the other. I mean, that, that's how it was presented, really, from, from both sides. Um, and I, I think that was a mistake. I mean, I, I think we should have... We should have approached this by, you know, by recognizing that um, there's always going to be a relationship between Ukraine and Russia. As much as those countries have had their problems with years, they're, they're, they're just culturally inseparable in a lot of ways. And, um, you know, making them, uh, you know, formerly formerly part of the of the of NATO. Um, even though they haven't done that, I, I, I think that that would be just a massive provocation to the Russians uh, that would be intolerable, it seems to me. I don't know. Uh, no, no, I, I agree with you guys, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah and, and I was at the embassy and during Kosovo, and that was, uh, you know, our relationships went south. And, and I understand, you know, in the last five or ten years, they've been horrible uh, for the, to work there. It seems a shame, a great place. It? Yeah, I, used to, I loved it there, but, uh, yeah. But and I agree with it about Ukraine and um, yeah, it's just a, it's just a, it's almost a Shakespearean tragedy what's going on there. Yeah, like, it what, is. If, if you were at the you were at the embassy and you thought about these things too, like what what then is the purpose of NATO? Like what should we be doing with NATO? Because that seems like it's just an organization that's flailing around looking for an mission, and we're being dragged along behind it as it chooses its mission. Well, I thought that, um, like I said, I think, you know, I, I said, why do we have NATO if we don't have a, don't have a quote, enemy? Um, and maybe if they had disbanded it back then, Russia never would have felt the pressure to rearm. I mean, who knows? Uh, I mean, certainly, like I said, you know, the former countries of the Warsaw Pact were not so eager to see NATO go away or... or um, or the Baltics, certainly, and maybe because they were taking a longer look, longer view of history than, uh, than you know, typical Americans who, you know, think five minutes in the future. Yeah, I but, mean, also, don't, sorry to interrupt, but the, we, we can't forget also that there's huge differences between the Baltics, who just really never wanted any part of being in Russia's orbit, and some of these other countries that have always had really close ties uh, to Russia, you know, to Russian culture or Slavic culture, right? So, you know, Moldova, Ukraine, like the, the Bulgaria, the, there's just a big difference between those countries and the Baltics, um, seems I to mean, me. I mean, Ukraine in particular, right? Because, you know, Ukraine and Russia, it, it's, it's kind of amazing to think about how well they got along for so long until just recently. They're the two biggest countries in Russia, in Europe, right by territory and they after the soviet union broke apart figured out ways to get along fine there was no real passport control for the longest time you could travel freely back and forth between the two countries everybody makes a a lot of focus about the black sea fleet because that's you know that's at sevastopol right there and off of crimea and russia and ukraine agreed that they were going to each rent half of that base and share it as sort of like a joint fleet 
they figured out lots of ways to get along. Uh, but at, like to your point, Taibi, once they started saying, once Ukraine started looking around and saying, we actually want more integration with Europe, we think it's a better economic deal, and started heading down that road, Russia counter-offered with, with a much better economic package at that time. And a threat, and then, too. Like, if you threat. do. Yeah. Right. And, and then, then uh, there was a coup. And uh, the pro Russian um, president was gone and had to flee the country, and uh, a new government entered that we all uh, embraced. So, from the Russian point of view, everything seems very dirty. It seems like part of a, like a, a conspiracy against them. I think that's how they feel about it. Right. Uh, I, can I have one more point, or do you want to move on to that? No, 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 it's fine. Go ahead. Yep. Uh, I think a lot of these countries want to be like Western Europe, and economically, they want to be rich. They want to have great roads. Uh, I was in Romania too, and you know when Romania joined the EU, you know it was. I mean, they they, they bent over backwards to to get to join the EU, and they, I think they all hoped. It would solve a lot of the corruption problems, and, and it hasn't. But still, you know, they had that, you know, so I think Ukraine probably was, I don't know personally, but I think, you know, they wanted to be more like Europe and not like Russia. And really, no matter how much Russia is going to offer, that's they're never going to be like Western Europe by being tied to Russia. Yes, uh, although, you know, um, it's funny, you know, I live in New Jersey, and there are parts of this state that remind me of how screwed up parts of the former Soviet Union looked when I lived there, and uh, there has been explosive growth in uh, in Russia uh, economically in some parts uh in and i mean i i know uh, that you you know stories about this matt uh from friends of yours you know there's 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 some optimism about the way things are going economically over there that was absent when i lived there um and so i don't know i mean it's yeah i i think you're right i think those countries initially very much wanted to be part of that club, uh, but it's it's not it's not an easy decision, you know. I I, I think I think we have a, a view of it that that is um, you know that is still grounded in uh, the Cold War idea that you know it's always going to be miserable and dark over there, and and our places are always going to be well run, whereas. Some parts of the world look at us and they see us as a country in decline. Um, that's increasingly a mess politically, and they're not so sure they want to be part of that either. I don't know, um, but interesting. Uh, anyway, Gary, thanks a lot. I, pre- I appreciate Thank it. Uh, let's let's go to uh, GK. No? 
All right, going once, going twice. GK, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to move on to John, I think. Uh, John, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yep. How's it going? Oh. Hi. Hello there. Hey, you know, Matt, thank you so much for taking this up. I uh, I sent you an email uh, to your Substack address uh, oh, thank you. about a month ago saying, oh, my God, please write about this since you live there. <laughs> um, the, um, the, the comment I want to make about uh, – I want to bring up two things about just kind of from a historical perspective. And maybe we just need to really work hard to help the American people understand how Russia sees the world. Because in 1939, uh, the Soviet Union signed a non-aggression pact with Hitler's Germany, which they promptly broke. And that was the start of a story that ended with 25 million Russians dead. Now, to get our heads wrapped around this, Pearl Harbor, we lost under 3,000 people. Mm. We lost about 3,000 in 9-11. So you have to take our national memories and multiply them a hundred times before you even approach the national memories of Russia. And when when I hear NATO say, "Oh, this is just a defensive," you know, we're just a defensive alliance. I'm like, that's a distinction without a difference to the Russians. The last time the Russians had a capable military power on their border, uh, it didn't end well for them. <laughs> And, the, last, and, and, the last several times that's been that's been the right. case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I used to I used to just tear my hair out listening to John Kerry and, and Barack Obama talk about oh well, the 21st century this that and the other thing. I'm like, well, wait wait a minute. The 18th century wasn't very kind to the Russians. Neither was the 19th, and the 20th was the worst of all. Why would the Russians think the 21st century is going to be any different? There, there's no rational reason for them to feel that way. Um. May 9th, they celebrate what they call the Immortal Regiment. And yeah. The, yeah. And, and I really, Matt, Matt, um, both Matts, mm. I'm, I'm going to beg you, please cover that this year. Please write about it. Um, it's, it's May 9th. Please write about their celebration of the Immortal Regiment because that's going to, you're going to have all kinds of optics, all kinds of imagery that you can bring to the table. And it's going to be a very, very great opportunity. It's a teachable moment for the American people. We need to have really clear on a reporting that's not tainted by the bureauc- NATO is a bureaucracy. Their first priority is not defending anything. Their first priority is perpetuating their own existence. Correct. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I agree. I and agree the, and that. that's the case in every bureaucracy. I work close to government, and I see it every day. Every single bureaucracy has the same first priority, and that's the perpetuation of their own existence. Um, and so we need people like you guys who are willing to stand up and just tell the story the way it is so that we can understand why Russia feels the way they do. Because there is no difference between an offensive posture and a defensive posture to them. And they learned that lesson in World War II. They learned that a treaty on a piece of paper doesn't stop bullets. It doesn't stop missiles. It doesn't stop tanks. The only thing that stops missiles, bullets, and tanks are other missiles, bullets, and tanks. And and so they're never going to see the world any other way. They just can't permit that themselves to countenance going through a repeat of World War II. And I'm just going to leave it there, Matt. That's what I want to beg you guys to do. Please cover the Immortal Regiment. Um 
the closest thing we have to it is the greatest generation, but it, it doesn't even approach how they memorialize those who they lost in World War II. And we've got to, we've got to be able to read and see and hear an honest reporting of that celebration in order for us to understand why they feel the way they do. And then maybe we can turn to our foreign policy establishment and tell them, just get your damn act together or get out and let us put somebody in there who understands these things. Thank you, Matt. All right. Excellent. Thanks, John. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the, uh, the, uh, the immortal regiment. That's, this is a Dane Pabietti thing, right? So that's the, um, you've seen the, the footage of it. That's the, um, began as a spontaneous thing where people just decided to organize a march on Victory Day, holding up photos of loved ones who had died in World War II. And it swelled to the point where they'll have like 25 million people out on the streets just marching, holding up photos of their family members who participated in the war. Um and it's a national celebration now that's completely organic. It wasn't created by the Kremlin or dreamed up by anybody. It just sort of happened. And now it's like one of the, you know, I mean, we have July 4th. Um, this is even more emotive, I think, for them than July 4th is for us, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I, I never saw that personally, like, uh, but I, I do know. It's, it's happened since we were, we weren't, yeah. it wasn't happening when we were there. Uh, yeah. Um, but, you know, I what I do remember, and you and I both remember this because we both lived in in Petersburg, um, you know, we both knew Blackhawk Netsi, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, for those who don't know the history, like the city of Leningrad was blockaded during World War II, and there was just unbelievable suffering and starvation and... Uh, you know, or, ordinary people went through things and they're, and they're, they were still around. Like I, you know, I, I met a number of these people and so there's a living history of suffering in Russia, um, that is like a very profound thing in that culture. Uh, and you, you really have to, dis- to, to distinguish between the country's leaders who let's not forget signed a a you know uh, a, a treaty with Hitler so that he could he could go invade the rest of us uh, and the Russian people who ended up suffering um, enormously uh, for the decisions that that Stalin made uh, and you know just went through things and you know this from talking to uh, you, you know your in laws and and other people. You know the, the the way that the war, the reality of the war, from the Russian side, was was so brutal uh, and horrifying um, that yeah, of course the 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 primary priority for the Russian people uh, is to never go through that again, right? And uh, obviously, it's it's a confusing history because as as uh, they were suffering, they were they were also perpetuating enormous suffering, or at least you know the party was, um, you the know, gulag and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or you know, the worst years had been before that, but still, uh, you know, those memories are are 
very vivid in, in, in Russia that, you, you know, you could see it physically that there were, there was a, a paucity of, um, there were, there were so many dead men, uh, that, that it was like a factor for Russia demographically for a long time. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I think, I think we in the United States don't have any, anything to compare that to like what what that national memory was like you know matt it's interesting because um the civil war if we look at our civil war um death toll uh you go down to the south and like in alabama if i remember correctly the age of consent for a woman to marry without her parents approval is 16 and it goes all the way down to 15 or 14 with the woman with the parents approval and the reason for that, historically, is the South lost so many marriageable-age men in the war that if a man who actually was still around wanted to marry um, a girl, the parents were like, okay, now we know someone will take care of our daughter when we're gone. And, right. And they were very, you know, it, it, it's, it just seems really, really strange to those of us who don't come from the South, but it's, 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 a, it's a similar kind of dynamic. Um. And my last comment is the thing I'd love to see on TV is I'd love to see somebody go in a Russian city, grab 10 people at random and ask them, how many of you have loved pictures of loved ones at home that died in the war? I'd be shocked if it were nine out of 10 at the minimum, if not all 10 would raise their hand. Yeah, I think it would be everybody. Yeah. Now, but, you do the same thing in a typical American city, and I'd be shocked if it's more than one or two. That's probably right. Matt, what do you think about that? I mean, it's definitely a different order of magnitude, that's for sure. I mean, we had, we won World War II by most accounts. Um, and we had not just the European war, but the war in Asia, the Pacific, right? Um, but our soldier death toll. Oh, did I lose you? Sorry, got another phone call. Was <laughs> was a fraction of. Okay, I think he's saying our soldier death toll was a was a fraction of uh, of what Russia's was, which is absolutely the case. Um, but yeah, and and you don't have to have positive opinions about uh, the Russian government, the Soviet Union, Putin, any of that, just to know that 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 experience is, is sort of fundamental to um, how Russians view the rest of the world. And you know their their distrust. There, there's a whole thing in in Russia about the divide between uh, sort of Europhiles and Slavophiles, and it's this um, ongoing debate over whether Russia should be should strive to be part of the West or or reject it. And this has been going on forever, uh, and. It's colored by you know their experiences um, over the centuries of you know these incredibly catastrophic wars uh, that um, some of which they've won actually all of which if I remember correctly they won because the people what always ends up happening is the Westerners invade and freeze to death um, but uh, well within uh, a with a like there's some important exceptions to them always winning like and one that would be really relevant would be the Crimean War right well that's true you're right yes yeah 
Yeah, it's kind of it's kind of fun to even think about that. Like when we're talking about Ukraine now, because first of all, before we in, before Putin invaded Ukraine proper, they seized the Crimean Peninsula of Ukraine, which everybody sort of was upset about when it happened, if you remember back, but also sort of went well. That seemed like that was one of those errors of the way the Soviet Union fell apart that was going to have to be addressed at some point. This is not the right way to address it, but I guess it's addressed now. It's going back to Russia. Um, it had always been Russian until Khrushchev gave it uh, to Ukraine as a birthday gift on its 300th birthday, back when that didn't mean anything, really. That would be like if the U.S. Congress decided to give uh, a piece of uh, you know Virginia to Maryland Right. It didn't really change anything. It would be offensive maybe to Virginia, but it didn't really change anything. Uh, but then when the Soviet Union fell apart and they were separate countries, now Crimea, which had always been Russian, um, is part of Ukraine. Yeah. Plus, it's um, also just very in the Russian character. I'm sure I'm sure he was drunk when that happened. Right. <laughs> uh, right. That was myth, right? Like, let's, right. <laughs> you know, let's let's it see. It has that can... feel to it, doesn't it? And you yeah. kind of have to wonder how they all received it at the time. I, I wish I wish I knew how that was discussed in kitchens uh, yeah. uh, across the Soviet Union. Right, right, right. But, um, but yeah. you know, the Crimean War, they like I don't think to this day people really understand fully why that particular war started it's just France and Britain uh, linked up with Turkey and I guess what used to be you know pre-Italy um, and decided to have a war with Russia and they, they even had a hard time figuring out exactly where they were going to have it and they sort of it sort of ended up in uh, the Crimean Peninsula at Sevastopol and they um the Russians lost. Uh, that, this is the war that gave you the charge of the Light Brigade and Florence Nightingale. Um, sort of a weird, strange footnote war in history. Um, but when they left, uh, they were furious. Um, and they were so embarrassed, it led to them selling Alaska to the United States in some arguments because they felt like, well, we can't defend anything if we can't defend Sevastopol. Um, that's a case where for no particular reason that the Russians fully understand or historians understand, the West came charging in straight up through Ukraine, Crimea, and smashed stuff. Uh, <laughs> that's like, you know, that's like precedent for them. We haven't had that experience. If we'd been invaded by Canada on three different occasions where they would like come down and burn our capital, and we might have strange feelings if Canada started arming heavily on the border, right? Right. Fortunately, the Canadians are nothing like uh, <laughs> that. Um, but uh, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, the the and, and this just gets back to the whole the whole Russian attitude towards Westerners, which is just very complicated, right? Like it's yeah, there, there's there's envy, anger, uh, admiration. Um, and a whole lot of other things mixed in there, right? Uh, and I, I think mo most Americans are just not in tune with what those feelings are. So, uh, but anyway, let's. Uh, John, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Matt, do you want, mind doing more, like one or two more? Is that is that okay? No, sure. All right, let's. Uh, John, thank you so much. Uh, and, all right, and yeah, thanks, let's. John. 
let's let's go to Joe. Are you there, Joe? He's got to unmute himself. Uh, nope, he's gone. All right, so, so let's let's try Lee. No. Matt. Yes, highly. Sorry, I wasn't quick enough. I, I want to be brief. I'm running around doing errands, but I just never want to miss your Collins. I'm so grateful to you and your friend, your old friend, for the courage you have to speak about the truth and I you you know not only are you both very articulate and intelligent and clearly high integrity um, we the frustrating thing for me is so much of what you're doing is obviously singing to the choir and I know you know everybody you know globally in the media in one way or another so I just wanted to say please don't give up trying to be heard by larger audiences um i you know i am seasoned now retirement age and grew up in the marine corps with very progressive family daddy you know loved smedley butler so we all need to reread smedley butler (laughs) war is war is a racket and that and i i don't know if any of us in this country are fully appreciating how much this is about following the money you know i I, i'm listening to folks here we all have a capacity for empathy and compassion we know our young naive you know patriotic people are going off to get maimed and killed with the repercussions of that trauma to the rest of us especially to their loved ones instead of having jobs programs or whatever the the military is is that and wasted resources and increasing economic disparity um you know i'm not a a democrat i i mean i think they're all in bed together the d's and r's and so your independent voices i just want to applaud so much and if there's a way uh, of you know going back on mar Bill Maher, you know, or doing, you know, people who have, who have a broader audience. I, I try to listen to some of these more right-leaning folks every once in a while just to get to broaden my perspective. One of them early this morning was talking about there's nothing that Putin's asking for that is unreasonable. I don't know. I'm just going on people who are paying attention more than I am. But, um, you know, we are doing this on purpose. These folks quite often our leaders are people who've long since lost a conscience or sense of humanity. And I, and there's no way to just bluntly say that to anybody you want to persuade. But if, if you can think of people who are, you know, in the pockets of some of these leaders who do have a conscience and get their help, I can't think off the top of my head who that would be, but um, it feels very urgent to me for our children's future. You know, so thank you sure. again. I mean, because you're no. you're so engaging and and funny at the same time. Like you're not acting weird. I mean, <laughs> people want to listen to you. People want to. You know what I mean? You know, you've got that in that style, and you've got your you push back so 
in such a gentlemanly way, but with humor, you know, like about the attacks on Substack or Joe Rogan, who, you know, he's just, he's just getting people to speak the truth the best he can. I mean, I go back on there, please. <laughs> you know, or just, I mean, I really just wanted to thank you and encourage you. Oh, well, thank, th- th- thank you, Lee. I really appreciate it. Um, He's kind of got a big enough head already, but yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, I know you love that muck raking. It's it is fun for you, obviously, but that's probably why you're still willing to do it. You know, <laughs> and I'm sure your kids are keeping you humbled plenty. So keep. Well, it that's up. true. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, thank you. I really appreciate it. Uh, to 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 be serious for a, for a minute, though. I mean, I think. I think one of the things, Lee, that, you, that you're talking about that um, is is a constant source of frustration for me, um, mm-hmm. Matt. If if you want to talk about your other role and uh, you know in the the sort of anti nuclear movement, um, in a moment we can oh, get yeah. to that. But but uh, oh, good. Oh, I love hearing that. So, yeah. but. You know, one one of the things that's an absolute constant in American politics, and always has been, and has been a source of frustration frustration to me throughout my career, is that uh, any politician who has any kind of anti-war leanings, um, just sort of inevitably comes under fire. Uh, through a, you know, a, a system of propaganda that we have in this country that o- almost works on autopilot. I mean, we, yeah. the, the Pentagon has a, has a, a billion dollar PR budget, but they don't even need it because, because yeah. the, because the, um, you know, the, most of the media companies uh, are, are already sort of in sync with this, highly militarized view of how the world works. And so anybody who has any, who, who has ever expressed any reservations about going, going to war to, in, in Iraq or, you know, not, uh, I mean, look what happened with, with Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, I, know. Uh, I, I mean, my heart. yeah. So, yeah. so it's, I, I think that's, it's, it's one thing I think for, for people in the media and I don't matter if you want to, uh, talk about this at all but it's uh it's it's the one it's the one thing that you is is most difficult to penetrate in our media is to get any kind of anti-war view um in front of a big audience it's just it's just not it's it's designed to not let that through Uh, right right i don't know matt if you if you had any thoughts about that yeah i mean i agree with all of it (laughs) you know like if you remember the run-up to the iraq war um yeah CNN was uh, not even asked to do reporting. They were just asked if it would be possible for peace groups and churches to buy ad time as if they were a business paying going rates. And CNN refused to let them do that. So that's censorship. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and why do they do that? Because, you know, a lot of the media is owned largely or partly by defense contractors. Yeah, that was more overt in the past too. I mean, I think NBC was the worst example of that. Um or or, or by or by nuclear weapons manufacturers, right? I mean, that was Oh yeah. Uh, and they're all on each other's boards. And and I think there are some really primitive violent force 
some violent forces going on that are primitive because of this just oh tragic misrepresentation of Russia in general and this ridiculous hatred that people like you know you talked about in your hate ink book you know fuel yeah i mean I, look I, I i i definitely get feeling negatively about putin i mean i yeah matt and i both wrote quite a lot um about about putin and and about you know corruption in his regime um while we were there and so there are there are there's lots to write about there that's 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 not pleasant at all um but but the the i think the the issue is it has to do with this kind of um you know otherization uh of of russia russia's it's, right. it's still a relatively minor economic power they've made they've made it out to be a much bigger deal yeah. than it really is and i think that's that mainly serves the purposes of these um you know these weapons contractors and right uh so it's just something to be conscious of i don't know matt do you have any other thoughts about that i mean the only other thing i would say about that is that russia does have thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons um and they are pointed a lot of them at us that is true Um, yeah and we have a lot of nuclear weapons thousands pointed at them if anybody anywhere uses 0.5 percent of the nuclear weapons arsenals that are out there um it'll crash the global climate this has been well established i actually have a um kind of a white paper coming out with international physicians for prevention of nuclear war soon about this. Um, It's shocking. Like it, you know, even a tiny quote unquote nuclear exchange between India and Pakistan could take us back to ice age level temperatures and there'd be like a total breakdown of everything. So when, and this is like, you know, I'm a, I'm on the national board of physicians for social responsibility, which is, Mm -hmm. I'm part very of ICRW. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have our nuclear weapons are on hair trigger alert. Yes. We have hundreds of nuclear weapons to be launched within 30 minute briefing um, at tops to our U.S. president. As an ER doctor, I do things like decide whether I'm going to send somebody to the cardiac cath lab for a heart attack or give them medications for a stroke. Getting something done in 15 to 30 minutes is it's overwhelming to get something done. Uh, And now we're talking about making a decision much bigger and much harder to understand that's repeatedly been turned out to be a mistake. Right. Uh, People don't even talk about the fact that Russia has said who knows what's true, but Russia has said and researchers looking into the Russian nuclear arsenal have to their satisfaction confirmed the existence of what's the, called the Myrtvaya Ruka, or the perimeter system, or the dead hand system. That if there's a nuclear explosion in Moscow, that computers in the other, other parts of the country will launch all the nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. That's a big problem. Oh, it's a huge <laughs> problem. And I don't know if you heard of, it was before your time, the Beyond War Educational Foundation. I was so involved when I was a younger adult 
and with children, young children. And it sort of fizzled out because we all were making all these presentations to all these groups and trying to network with people who have influence. And everybody we talked to, it seemed, was so tribal and worried about how it would affect their business that oh yeah you know, we, we're just siloed in these different echo chambers you know whatever the metaphor is you know what i mean i mean i just if there's a way you can leverage any personal connections where it's somebody who you know like appreciated tulsi for example and but has money and clout and they can you know and maybe wants to leave a legacy that's more than just leaving gazillions to their kids i mean it would be awesome if we could find that you know because people like daniel ellsberg He's and you know even Noam Chomsky, they're they're doing the best they can, but you know they're not here much longer. It's it's just um, yeah yeah really uh, important. It's important to see if you can infiltrate the <laughs> the that you know the New York Times crowd. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. Lee, uh, th- 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 thanks so much for the questions and the con- the kind comments. I I, I think. I, well, what I will say from an optimistic point of view, I think there is a sort of a robust um, independent media scene that's growing and is largely anti-war, I would say. Yeah. Or, uh, so that's that's a good thing. But thank uh, anyway, thank you so much, Matt. Is it, if it's okay, we'll do one more. Is that all right? Yeah, sure. I'm, yeah. All right. Sounds good. So Thanks, let's, Lee. Nice to talk th- to you. Thank you, Lee. Oh. Thank you again. I just... I think I might have accidentally just zapped somebody. Uh, hopefully not. All right. Uh, Dave, I think you're up. Oh, wait. No, it was... Yep. Ah. Uh... Uh, okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> Showing off all your technical abilities I'm, here. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, I don't know. This is the? Hey, uh, Matt. Yes. Uh, hey, it's great to talk to you. I've been following your work for a while, and uh, I'm a huge fan of your uh, reporting and, and as well as Useful Idiots and your books. So it's, uh, it's really cool to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Uh, so I was just wondering, uh, I know you've written about before, like in Afghanistan, for example, how, you know, you'll see the mainstream media will have on like generals and they won't disclose that they're um, <laughs> getting funding from the military industrial complex. And so I was wondering uh, in this Ukraine situation, you know, I've seen multiple uh, Ukrainian officials saying they, they don't really think a, a Russian invasion is as imminent as some of the West is portraying it to be. So I was kind of wondering, like, uh, how much of a role do you think uh, sort of like military industrial complex funded think tanks are um, having in, in sort of pushing this narrative and, and sort of using it to justify, you know, sending more arms to, to Ukraine and, and things like that that would benefit uh, companies like Raytheon and, and uh, uh, you know, I, not necessarily Boeing, but... Um, North of Grumman. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I'm at the point now when I, when I watch the news where I, I don't really know how much to believe about almost anything. So yeah, me too. So for instance, you know, that those satellite photos that, you know, purported to show the massing of the Russian, Russian forces, 
Um, yeah, there was a time in my life where I would have reflexively accepted that as true, and now now I I don't so much. Uh, I I do think that uh, a lot of the portrayal of um, or or the emphasis on Ukraine as an issue, as opposed to all the other places and things in the world that we could be talking about, um, you know, is is partly an outgrowth of. Uh, the influence of all these these lobbyists and weapons companies, and um, you know, in, in in much the same way that uh, you know, you see cable news, the the way that they talk about the pandemic is so in, um, is so influenced by the fact that pharmaceutical companies are the biggest advertisers on cable. Exactly. Uh, uh, you know, I, 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 it's just impossible in Washington, especially where. Defense money dominates everything. You know the 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 owner of the the Washington Post is the you know one of the biggest defense contractors and intelligence contractors in the world. Um, so yeah, I, I it's hard it's hard for me to separate out how 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 real this issue is versus um, ver, you know ver, versus how what, how much of it is just trying to whip up the public in order to justify more arms sales, not only in Ukraine, but to other areas in the region. And uh, you might have seen a story that said that, that Joe Biden was, quote unquote, weighing, uh, you know, sending more weapons to other countries in the area, which had to be great news to a lot of people in the, you know, the D.C. area. But uh, but I don't know. Um, Matt, what do you think? I mean, if you do the math on 2% of the Ukraine GDP, uh, which is what, if Ukraine joined NATO, they would be expected to spend on weapons, it's $3 billion a year. So that's not nothing. That's like a, for a not super rich country. Um, and I don't think you have to... I think part of the issue is... Uh, so could, no, you, could you mute yourself while, while Matt talks? Is that okay? Yep. Go ahead, Matt. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, that's oh, that's yeah, that's better. I, I keep I kept getting a lot of feedback when I'd be talking. Yeah. Um. I was thinking about it, and like, if you, it, it doesn't have to even be as incredibly nefarious or um, conspiracy minded as it sounds. If you remember, like Grapes of Wrath, there's like this famous scene where um, the bank guy goes out and explains to the farmer that they're going to have to foreclose on his house. And the farmer's like, well, I'm just tell me who tell me who I have to go shoot at the bank to stop this. I'll just kill that guy. And the bank representative replies, so it doesn't matter. Everybody, the bank is bigger than any one person. If you kill him, somebody else will just be replacing him. Everybody who works at the bank abhors what the bank does. Nobody thinks it's right. But the bank is just the bank. It just moves. It does its own thing. And I think, like, defense contractors are probably similar in a lot of ways. They are organizations that have a mission. They're making their product. They have to sell their product. They advocate for things that will let them do that. Um, and there's no pushback in that space because there's no competitor against that, right? If you think, like, in lots of ways, this may seem like I'm changing the subject, but if you think about climate change... In lots of ways, I'm more optimistic about that because there's a lot of other competitors that get money from working to 
get us to clean energy systems, right? Mm-hmm. There's solar, there's wind, there's a whole constituency. All of that positive energy will eventually back campaigns, political changes, etc. There's no peace constituency. Nobody makes a buck off of trying to stop the spread of NATO or stop the spread of weapon systems. Uh, so you have to actually stand up and do something about it. And I found it very disheartening when I've gone around talking to people in Congress through PSR about how they need to you know, step away from nuclear weapons, step away from militarization. Their reply is, absolutely, agree. You need to get some people out on the street talking about that. Then we'll pay attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like, uh, well, how are you going to do that? You know, you right? Yeah. Have a catastrophe or something. Otherwise, people are just living their lives. You could get them out there to talk about healthcare costs or heating costs or even climate change, which they're recognizing threatens them. But you know, yeah. No, I I, I I totally agree. I mean, for me, the the metaphor for me is not climate change, but. Uh, financial regulatory reform. I mean, I remember covering Dodd-Frank and, you know, when that bill was going through, there were like 2,000 bank lobbyists roaming, uh, you know, the halls of Dirksen and uh, and Cannon and everything. I mean, I I had an interview uh, with one senator and I went into his office and there was, it was standing room only in there because there were so many lobbyists and there is nobody on the other side. There were there were like two dozen maybe like volunteer lobbyists from places like Americans for Financial Reform who were kind of hoping for public uh, citizen. Yeah. yeah, exactly, right? So they right. they have they have no opposition and that's that's completely the case with defense where there's even there there's even less of a um of a constituency on the other side. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah. So it's it's really depressing. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, hold on, my my dog is barking. Oh, uh, and I'm sorry. There are little little children at my house. Anyway, we have to wrap this up anyway, right? So, um, uh, Matt, thanks so much for coming out. Uh, the thank for you. Thanks for your question. Yeah, thank you. And um, and we'll we'll have to do this again sometime. And uh, we'll this the transcript for this will be up soon. And uh, um, Matt, thanks again, and we'll talk. Great, thanks. It was fun. All right, thanks everybody for coming out. Take care.